This is Ravi Gupta and you're listening to The Regressives. This is a narrative podcast series from Lost Debate that examines progressive policies, ideas, and leaders in practice. And as a veteran of progressive campaigns, I've long felt that liberals' professed values and practices are out of sync. And this podcast is dedicated to shining a light on those discrepancies in the hopes of eliminating them. And today, I'm speaking with Victor Matheson, who's a sports economist and professor at the College of Holy Cross, who has studied stadium financing for over two decades. And this conversation really started after it was announced that the NFL's Buffalo Bills, which is my favorite team, were going to build a new stadium. And the stadium will cost a massive $1.4 billion. And Erie County, where Buffalo is located, along with New York State, will foot 60% of this project, or about $850 million in taxpayer money. And so I was happy to see that my beloved team, the Bills, the only team that plays in New York, by the way, in the NFL, were getting a new stadium. But the project reignited an old debate, and that is... Should taxpayers fund large-scale stadiums for billionaire owners? And this is exactly what Victor and I get into in today's episode. We talk about the history of sports stadiums in America. We talk about the arguments for and against public financing of stadiums. And then we talk about why this trend of taxpayers footing the bill for stadiums might not be going away. Trust me, you won't need to be a sports fan to enjoy this conversation. Let's get into it. As you can imagine, news of this big deal, the new deal for a new stadium spread like wildfire today. The $850 million taxpayer contribution. It's a price tag one Metro Sports Authority member called eye-popping. What it'll cost taxpayers to renovate this stadium or build a new one. We're proposing a new stadium paid for by the team, the state, tourists and spending around the stadium. We shouldn't be showing out a single cent. But the stadium is the experience. The football game is like last. We have to come to our senses and stop signing these deals. Professor Matheson, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So you have become one of the foremost experts on stadium financing. How did you even get into this business in the first place? Like, how did this issue catch your attention? Yeah, so this is actually totally accidental. Uh, just a kind of a, a good example of you can't plan your life. Uh, I got, uh, during the middle of, of grad school, I got married and uh, looked for a job in my spouse's uh, place. I was living in Minnesota. She's living in Chicago. Uh, I either won or lost, uh, depending on how like how you like Chicago, and ended up in Chicago. Uh, looked for a temporary job, ended up getting one at Lake Forest College up in the northern suburbs. Uh, happened to be in the office next door to Robert Body, who was the uh, kind of the guy who did all of the seminal research on stadium economics. He and I hit it off, and here I am. 25 years later, uh, doing stadium economics ever since a just a fortuitous accident of ending up in a college and an office next to uh, a, a guy who who started the kind of the whole uh, study of uh, stadium economics. And so for listeners who are not sports fans off the bat, explain why this is about more than sports. So the reason this is more about sports is this is uh, this is about roughly 70 billion dollars of money that we've spent on stadiums in the big four sports in the United States, uh, and probably big five. Uh, so this would be the NFL, the NBA, the NHL and hockey, uh, Major League Baseball, as well as Major League Soccer, who has been the big stadium builder in the last decade, decade or so. And we've spent about, again, somewhere between 70 and $90 billion on new stadiums in those five sports. 
between roughly 1990 and today. And that's actually not the, the key point here. The key point is about half of that money has come from taxpayer subsidies. So we really don't care if businesses spend a bunch of money building their own stadiums or their own factories or their own stores or their own restaurants. Uh, what's really important for economists, if you're going to spend someone else's money, then there's a higher bar to reach there. And so we've spent about $35 billion in public money on new stadiums over the last 25 years. And so naturally the question is, was that money well spent? And I should also point out that this is just spending on uh, stadium construction subsidies. We have a huge amount of additional subsidies in terms of property tax abatements and mortgage interest deductibility, or, or, or I guess more municipal bond interest uh, deductions, below market leases, stadium upkeep, all sorts of other things as well. But just in stadium construction subsidies, we're in the tens of billions of dollars. And uh, with that sort of money, it's worth asking, is that money that's been well spent? Well, let's dig into it then. First, before we even get to some of these projects, is the U.S. alone in this? Like, is this an issue in Europe, for example, where they have you know huge stadiums for soccer? So strangely, uh, very, very capitalistic uh, United States have a very socialist uh, set of uh, leagues compared to Europe. And we're also pretty socialist with, when it comes to building stadiums. So we spend a lot more public money on stadiums than most of the big soccer teams in Europe. And that doesn't mean they don't have billion dollar stadiums in Europe. It just simply means that uh, cities are less likely to put money into stadiums in the, uh, again, socialist Europe has very capitalistic uh, soccer leagues and tends to have pretty capitalistic uh, stadiums as well. So this isn't exclusively a United States thing, but uh, a little more United States than other places. But again, it's not just us. So, for example, uh, Tokyo just built a $1.5 billion stadium for the Olympics. That stadium itself, which never actually hosted any Olympic fans, thanks to COVID, uh, but that $1.5 billion stadium cost more for the Olympic Games there than the entire Olympic Games in 1984 cost in, in Los Angeles, oh uh, even after accounting for inflation. So uh, it's not exclusively U.S., but uh, probably more U.S. than at least the big soccer leagues in Europe. And so you're so I guess from that, it's safe to say it's this problem is getting worse. So more more public subsidies as a percentage of stadium projects and more expensive stadiums. Is that a trend? So it, it depends when, when you would have asked me that question. If you'd asked me that exact question a year ago, I would have said, actually, no, uh, lots of trends look pretty good. Uh, so between 1990, and we usually tag things at about 1990, and if we really want to put a starting point on it, it's the uh, creation of Camden Yards which is the, a really nice baseball stadium in Baltimore. It, uh, it's kind of a watershed moment because it was a really nice stadium, replaced uh, uh, a multi-use stadium that had been uh, used before that they were sharing with the NFL. It's a nice stadium, and it was explicitly done not just as a stadium, but as a method to generate economic redevelopment. So, and, and of course, it was such a nice stadium that everyone wanted one uh, in the rest of Major League Baseball and other sports uh, chimed in as well saying, oh, we want something like that for our sport. So we usually tag things back to about 1990, uh, again, the creation of Camden Yards. And between then and about 2008, about two thirds of all stadium construction costs were borne by the public with one third coming from private money. 
since 2008, uh, that, those numbers switched because in 2008, we had the Great Recession. Uh, we remember that uh, you get the housing market collapsed and cities and municipalities found it fairly distasteful to hand over hundreds of millions of dollars to billionaire owners and millionaire players when they're laying off teachers and firefighters. And so the, the numbers actually switched. So between 2008 and about 2021 or so, uh, those numbers had switched. So it was about two thirds private and one third public. So, uh, you know, kind of switching the roles from, from the decade and a half before. Uh, on top of that, we'd had a, a real slowdown in the number of stadiums from, you know, two or three new ones uh, coming online every year to only about one. We'd seen a lot more almost fully privately financed stadiums, for example, like the stadium in Los Angeles for the for the NFL. Uh, like That uh, one was totally private, huh? Totally private and a two and a half billion dollar stadium. And I, and I just was there. Yeah, I was just there. It's beautiful. And a beautiful yeah. stadium. Uh, it shows that you can do these things without public money. And uh, we saw voters in city after city re uh, reject large amounts of, of public uh, public money. In San Diego, uh, we had limits on the amount of public money going into a new stadium in St. Louis. We had voter initiatives in places like Denver and Albuquerque that turned down uh, various kind of minor league sort of stadium projects in, in recent elections. And so again, if I if I was sitting here in uh, 2000 uh, at the beginning of 2022, I'd say no, things are getting a lot better, and uh, you know we're not winning every war, but we are winning a lot of the battles. Uh, the stadiums have gotten very expensive, so you know in terms of total dollars, money has gone up uh, sometimes, uh, but in terms of percentage, it's gone way down. And then we had 2022 come in. We saw a stadium for the NFL in Buffalo coming in with $850 million of public money, a real back, uh, backroom deal that was totally non-transparent. Most in nominal terms, at least the most money ever spent of public money for a, a stadium in, in the United States. Uh, and at that time, I said, this is a terrible deal, one of the worst I've ever seen. Uh, and I said, it's, it's hard to imagine a worse stadium <laughs> than what's going on in Buffalo, at which point Nashville said, oh, wait a minute here, hold my beer, and uh, came up with about a $1.3 billion taxpayer subsidy uh, for a $2 billion stadium in, in Nashville that's still kind of uh, uh, under underway, but uh, it looks like the powers that be are rushing that one through in a way that that's going to come through. And again, billion-dollar stadium after billion-dollar stadium. As soon as those floodgates opened, we've seen uh, tons of proposed stadiums with, again, enormous amounts of public money. In you know, it's interesting. I used to live in the shadows of that Nashville stadium, and I'm a huge Bills fan. So these are two stadiums I've been thinking about a lot. And I guess starting with the Nashville stadium, in a weird way, even though it was more money, it makes a little bit more. I don't think any of these projects make sense, to be clear, but it makes a little bit more sense in the sense that this is a growing city with a huge concert demand. So I saw the Rolling Stones in LP Field. I don't know if it's still called that, but the the current stadium. So you, one could imagine musicians like to go there. The weather's much better than Buffalo year-round, so an outdoor stadium makes some sense. But all that being said... It seems clear that the economics of owning the Titans as a team, shouldn't that be enough to finance debt obligations on whatever stadium you want? Never mind the argument about whether you even need a new stadium. Maybe I'm wrong. I've been in that stadium. Was it falling apart or something? Is there something I was unaware of structurally with the stadium? Yeah, so it depends on who you ask. Uh, so let, let's, let's take a look at 
let's take a look at Tennessee first, okay? So Tennessee is a stadium that's about 20 years old. Uh, the contract that was originally negotiated with the uh, with the team uh, was highly, highly slanted towards the team. So this is a stadium that the original stadium is almost entirely uh, pr uh, publicly financed. And uh, with a clause in the stadium saying that the city was on the hook for all the maintenance and the city, city was required to uh, keep that facility as a, quote, first class facility. Uh, of course, that's not well mm. defined exactly what a first class facility is. So we're we're coming up here with that stadium of being about 20 years old. And the Titans said, hey, let's take a look at what's needed in terms of repairs and maintenance to uh, maintain this facility as a first class facility. So the Titans themselves basically hired a consultant saying, OK, how much would it cost to make this a first class facility? And oh, by the way, this is what we as the Titans think a first class facility uh, requires. So they have this gigantic wish list of a million things on there. And lo and behold, when the uh, when the handpicked uh, consultants, uh, you know, uh, hired by the Titans to tell the uh, city of, of Nashville what's needed to meet their contractual obligations, it turns out to be like one point nine billion dollars. So just just basic renovations and repairs are something like six times more than the than the uh, than the stadium even cost in the first place and are roughly five times more than any renovation project of any uh, stadium in US history and they and <laughs> the city of, of Nashville said well I mean if you guys say you need a 1.9 billion dollars of repairs to to meet our basic obligations I mean we can't argue with that. Uh, so why don't we just build you a new stadium? Because it makes more sense to build a new stadium for $2.2 billion rather than just repair an old one for 1.9. And let's go forward. And quite honestly, that's probably true. I mean, think about your car. If you've got a car with a couple hundred thousand miles on it and the transmission mm -hmm. drops out and the mechanic says, oh, it, it requires tens of thousands of dollars of repairs. Well, they're, they're probably right. You should probably buy a new one rather than repair the old one. But that's only if your your mechanic isn't lying to you, right? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, we have the Coliseum is still standing after thousands of years. Fenway is still a beautiful place to watch a baseball game, I'm sure, with a lot of upkeep. It, it, it seems amazing to me, with all the the advances in building construction in this country, we can't build stadiums. I know we can. I mean, it's a point. But like, they're trying to argue that we can't build stadiums that can last more than a couple decades. Yeah, I mean, that's right. So we have a stadium here built out of concrete. That's obviously wildly concerning. And uh, of course, we never got an independent taxpayer, uh, a taxpayer advocate coming in and saying, okay, what do we really need to do to satisfy the lease here, right? Uh, this is something when, if, if a person was spending their own money and someone said, hey, you require, it, this requires $1.9 billion, you would get a second opinion. Uh, yes. And you would certainly uh, not only get a second opinion about what needs to be done, you would also go to court here and say, all right, let's talk about what actually is needed here. You would either go to court and say, I will do this. And if the Titans say, no, you have to do this. And you'd say, OK, I'll see you in court about what our very, very loosely worded uh, uh, contract actually requires us to do. But the, you know, the folks who are running uh, Nashville really, really want a new stadium. They want to put their stamp on something in, yep. in this sort of way. Uh, they're not particularly concerned about taxpayer uh, taxpayer money here. Uh, obviously, it's not their money. It's the taxpayer's money. And so there's been no due diligence at all about really 
what is required. It's just assumed that we have to build a new stadium because it's a lot better deal than repairing uh, an old stadium for $1.9 billion, a completely ridiculous argument. And, and that's where we have it. It's amazing, you know, and the mayor is is known as quote unquote business friendly, which <laughs> you know, whatever that means in this context. What's fascinating though is this is a question of leverage, right? The Titans are not leaving Nashville. It, this is different than the Bills situation in many ways in terms of leverage. Nashville is one of the if you could go back in time 20 years and pick a city in America that didn't have a football team other than maybe Austin, Texas, although Austin is so close to Dallas that they'd never allow it to happen. Jerry Jones is so popular with the NFL. Let's also remember they do have the Longhorns, and that's uh, pretty close to a uh, professional right. franchise. <laughs> right. But, like, it's hard to pick a city. Like, if it, like that could, that's better than Nashville in terms of the growth of the city, the fact that it's pretty far away from other professional sports teams. It's got a loyal fan base. They're not going anywhere. This team isn't going anywhere. So it's like whatever they like, it's not like the city, it's not like the Titans have a gun to the head of the city. Like, you know, it's a good transition to Buffalo where this is a fan base that is historically, <laughs> historically aggrieved, tragic franchise in a small city that isn't really growing that much and that is constantly worried. And this happens a lot, right? These owners go to their city and they say this, you know, you talked about the Rams, for example, we, we can get into what happened with the Rams in St. Louis, but these these owners go to this city, or in this case, the state, and say, all right, I know you're worried I'm going to leave. Here's what I need to stay. And you have these fans, I'm one of them, who are just so, so deathly afraid that the owner's going to walk away and take, you know, take the bills to Austin, Texas, or take the bills to somewhere else. And the owners are able to extract so much from the public. So let's talk maybe about Nashville. Like what, what were they able to get out of this deal? How were they able to do it? Because New York is interesting. Like New York City looms large and New York City has nothing to gain from this stadium yet is subsidizing this, you know, historically expensive stadium. Yeah. So this is really what is crazy, right? Is that you're absolutely right. The Titans were not going anywhere. There is no open market anywhere in the United States that is better than Nashville is. You could move to Portland, Oregon. That's not a done deal and there's no stadium for them there. You could move to Austin. Austin has not shown any taste for putting up a big a, a bunch of money for an NFL stadium. Uh, they put nothing into the Major League Soccer Stadium they just built uh, recently. You could move to what, Toronto? No, I don't think so. Uh, London, San Antonio, again, every place that you could move instead has significant problems that make it a much less attractive uh, option for the the team than right where they're at. So again, the uh, the team has very little leverage here, yet the city is bending over backwards to build them a new stadium in a way that they wouldn't, uh, presumably for lots of other businesses, they wouldn't, they wouldn't pay for 75% of a restaurant's construction costs or a movie theater's construction costs, but they're willing to do this for, for the team here. And, and again, they're willing to spend 
about 50% more than has ever been spent in public money for a stadium anywhere uh, in the United States in U.S. history. Unbelievable. Uh, and this is this is even adjusting for any type of inflation or any type of increase in construction costs. So wildly out of line for anything we've ever seen before. Totally unnecessary. Different story, potentially at least, in Buffalo. Uh, when Buffalo first got their uh, franchise back in 1960, um, Buffalo was one of the 20 largest or 25, certainly 25 largest metropolitan areas in the United States. It's uh, it's a major industrial powerhouse, along with other big cities like Cleveland and Pittsburgh, uh, which would have been considered large and prosperous markets at the time. Uh, at this point, uh, the Buffalo metropolitan area is the 49th largest uh, metropolitan area in the United States, one of the poorest, actually, uh, and 49th largest which means that there are at least 15 metropolitan areas in the United States that are bigger and richer than Buffalo, but don't have an NFL team. Now, I don't honestly think the uh, the Bills were really moving anywhere, but at least there's a credible threat to move in a way there is just no credible threat for uh, Nashville to move away. This is a classic case of uh, just a, a city with terrible, terrible bargaining skills. And of course, uh, <laughs> yeah. they don't really care. It's it, it's fine if they're bargaining with taxpayer money rather than their own. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to sell that guy a used car. That's all I know. Well, well let's pause there for a second because the, the economics, this is where you can maybe geek out on the economics of the NFL. You talked about how our sports leagues are are socialist compared to Europe, and you didn't just mean the stadiums. And I think the NFL is a great example of this, and it explains the bills, where you have one of the richest owners in the NFL, in Terry Pagula and Kim Pagula, and you know they made their money in fracking, from what I understand. Yet they own this franchise in the bills, which seemingly, you're like, oh, this is not the best economic proposition because the market is so small. But the economics of the NFL seem to me, educate me on this, it seems to me like having a small market team with a loyal fan base and great public subsidies for a stadium is almost one of the best deals you can get in sports because of the revenue sharing in the NFL. Yeah, so this really is a good deal. Uh, and uh, so we really had to go back and, and talk about the early days of the NFL. Uh, NFL was founded in, in 1920. Uh, college football was was popular at the time, but but professional football had never gotten any any large traction there. There'd been some previous leagues uh, in Ohio that, that weren't wildly attended. But the NFL starts in 1920. And between 1920 and 1935, about 50 different teams play at least one season in the NFL. Uh, of those 50 teams, about 45 of them have either failed or relocated over that 35-year period. So you have this, this league that has wild amount of turnover. It is, uh, it's a terrible deal for most of the owners. Back in those days, you know, one of the sayings was, how do you become a millionaire? Start as a multimillionaire and own a sports franchise because uh, you're going <laughs> to lose money doing it. Uh, so the owners of the rich clubs, and this is like the Giants and the Bears, these sort of teams that are still around today uh, that have wildly successful franchises in big markets, kind of come to the realization that, you know, we can't have a league unless we have someone to play, which means that we need to we need to do a lot of revenue sharing and uh, it will be much better for us as owners of these big franchises if we can develop a solid league with lots of permanent rivals and a solid list of teams in the league year after year. And so basically they say this, they say, first of all, we're going to have a huge amount of revenue sharing from 
teams that visit. So you'll share a lot of your gate revenue when you come and visit. And we'll also share, uh, we'll also share media revenues. Now, media revenues aren't much of a thing in, in the uh, 1920s and 1930s. You start to have some radio, but radio is really more of a, a baseball sort of phenomenon than, than football. Uh, and they also decide eventually, starting in the 1950s, to share all their media revenue evenly as well. They actually get an exemption from Congress to be able to sell their media rights as a league rather than as individual teams. And they say, look, we basically like a, a, a smaller slice of a bigger pie is actually good for those big market teams. You know, we, uh, mm-hmm. we could have all the pie, but if the pie is not very big, uh, that's not going to be great. If we can grow the whole league, we're going to be really happy with uh, our even share of this wildly prosperous league. And it works spectacularly, right? So the NFL- Yeah, it's a very competitive league. Yeah, if it were like baseball, the the Cowboys would be like the Yankees. They'd always be in the playoffs, and the Bills would be, you know, like the Oakland A's. Right, so they've done a couple things, right? So they have this massive revenue sharing, and so they share exactly evenly all of the media revenue. And what's different here is that every single game that's broadcast in the NFL, that that revenue has been negotiated, and that broadcast has been negotiated by the league as opposed to baseball, where every team has their own deal with either their own in-house TV uh, program or uh, individually with with, uh, outside stations. So uh, the Yankees end up with a media contract uh, in baseball that's like, you know, 20 times bigger than the media contract than like a Kansas City might get or a month. In their own TV station. Yep, exactly right. But in, but in, in the NFL, the Bills get exactly the same thing as the Giants, who get exactly the same thing as the LA Rams, who get exactly the same thing as the little tiny Green Bay Packers in terms of at least you know how big that city is. So that means uh, that, yeah, the Packers aren't at a huge disadvantage to the Giants, even though Green Bay has about 200,000 people in the greater metropolitan area. And, and, uh, and, and of course, New York has about 17 million. You also have this salary cap too, right? Which is another way to keep the competitive equities there, but also uh, another way to help the Pagulas of the world because right. they don't have to be in an arms race with Jerry Jones. Yeah, so the other big thing that's happened is, so first of all, all of these teams have uh, have then kind of a similar amount of revenue coming in. Uh, and again, the agreement that they've, uh, they've done with their players, which mind you is very similar to the agreement that the players have in the NBA and the NHL, is basically uh, the players also are this idea of give us a slice of the pie and we just want that pie to be as big as possible. And so uh, the basic agreement is uh, that the players have have given the, the teams is give us half of the money that comes in and you can do whatever you want to us otherwise in terms of, <laughs> of you know, limiting what salaries we can make in different places as long as the players as a whole uh, get at least half of the money overall. The players are like, go ahead. And and what the NFL owners have decided is let's make the league as competitive as possible, have really strict salary caps so everyone's kind of on a level playing field. That level playing field, the amount of money they have to give to the, the players is about half, which is roughly covered by the media rights. So, you know, every everyone makes money. Basically, the money you make in the stadiums is is basically just frosting on the cake because what you're bringing in mainly is media rights, which are evenly shared. You are you have cost controls because you're not spending a wild amount of money on your uh, on your players, 
And so you can make money uh, in, in, in Buffalo just as much as you can make money in basically downtown New York City. Yeah. And so, oh, so talk about this Buffalo Stadium. There are a couple of puzzling aspects of this stadium that I want you to help explain to me because it reminds me of the Yankee Stadium because when they built the new Yankee Stadium, I don't know if this was true or not, but this, the sort of tale being told around the city was there are actually fewer seats in the new Yankee Stadium than the old one. Never mind the fact, like, I don't know if that's true or not, but never mind the fact that they would never knock down Fenway for a new stadium. Those of us who are fans of the Yankees, it was kind of appalling that you'd knock down a historic stadium instead of just upgrading it. But we'll put that aside. The Bills Stadium, it seems very clear there are fewer seats. Correct me if I'm wrong. So how is it that they get subsidies without expanding the footprint for fans? So typically what uh, most stadiums have been on over the last uh, basically 20 years, again, 30 years actually, since uh, since the Camden Yards, is stadiums are designed to provide fewer seats, but better ones, right? Uh, and the reason is, is that you can make a whole lot more selling a handful of premium seats than a very, very large number of very poor seats. So for example, I'm, I'm here in, in the Boston area and TD Bank North Garden, that's the, the garden that the Celtics have always played in, mind you, an entirely privately financed facility. That facility, you know, it has... It's, it's a standard indoor NBA arena, right? It's got the lower deck ones, and then it's got the nosebleed fan, you know, stand uh, seats all the way up, you know, in the corners in that in that upper deck. And you can sell, you can obviously buy those those seats for a game. And of course, you, you can't see the game very well. And because you can't see the game very well, they can't sell you that, that those seats for very much. Or you can literally buy a folding chair that's that sits on the actual floor, right? So uh, <laughs> they sell a handful of Again, literal folding chairs uh, that you can sit basically on the end of the Celtics bench right on the floor there and and see the NBA action close up. At a typical game, now these things uh, vary from game to game depending on demand, typically two seats on the floor will cost roughly the same as seats in the the upper deck. And what I mean by seats in the upper deck is an entire section of seats in the upper deck cost the same as two seats on the floor. So again, if you think about uh, revenue, it, it it doesn't do you any good to sell an extra 10,000 seats that you can't sell for much money. You'd much rather design a system that is that sells fewer products, but at a much higher price. And that's what we see in basically all of baseball. Uh, again, same thing in, in, in football. The, these will be nicer seats better seats in terms of sight lines, uh, better seats in terms of amenities, but generally fewer of them. And also, this may be news to some people, Buffalo is not a warm place and football is generally played in the winter. And this is an outdoor stadium. And so part of what these these folks argue to their cities is, and you've done some work on this, is they say, ah, it's not just about our football games, right? It's going to be about concerts and other events going on here. Puzzling then, I understand for the competitive equities of it, we, we Bills like to play outdoors because it's a competitive advantage for us. But the idea that there's going to be a Rolling Stones concert in January in Buffalo <laughs> in an outdoor stadium is laughable. And so, and that's like an egregious example of it, but you've done some work to, to look into the economics of these stadiums to say, all right, clearly this is not in the economic interest of a city when you're just focused on the games and it's particularly bad when it comes to the NFL because there really aren't that many games, right? Like what is it, eight or nine 
at home games you're going to get, you know, a slightly more if you make the playoffs but and, and get home field advantage. But there's not a lot of games happening. What When you take into account concerts and other events happening at these stadiums, is there anything to the argument that cities recoup revenue for other events? So when it comes to NFL stadiums, Major League Baseball stadiums or Major League Soccer stadiums, there is no argument for that whatsoever. And the reason is, especially when talking about a an NFL stadium, is there is almost nothing on the planet that needs 70,000 seats. There are extremely <laughs> few entertainment projects or entertainment acts out there that can sell 70,000 seats in a market like Buffalo. Uh, and uh, quite honestly, not many that can sell that many seats in a New York City. Uh, the number of big bands that take stadium tours, uh, you can almost count on, on one hand. The average NFL stadium between 2000 and 2019, which is uh, you know before COVID hit, the average NFL stadium hosted about two concerts a year. Two concerts a year. Buffalo itself, in the 40 years that that stadium was open, uh, opened up in about 1973. So actually, that's 50 years that it was it was around. They held 19 concerts total, 19. <laughs> and it's not the weather because the Rolling Stones typically don't go on tour in January. Uh, so it, the, the reason you wouldn't go see the Rolling Stones in, in Buffalo in January is not just because it's Buffalo in January. It's because the Rolling Stones uh, want to fill up those big uh, NFL arenas because they're one of the few bands in the world that can do it. And so they all go out and tour in the summer. Uh, when people can, you know, have a little bit of extra time to go out and there's more stadiums that they can go to. So again, Taylor Swift, she's goes out on, on tour through the summer. Elton John's final tour, whether it was his final tour, right, uh, just happened here over the summer again. So a, a handful of these things. Buffalo, again, not going to attract many acts because it just doesn't have the population base to sell enough tickets to fill up the stadium they have. Again, they had 19 total concerts over 50 years. But you might say, well, it's not just concerts. What about uh, you know soccer games, all these sort of other things? Yeah, that adds up uh, to a, another roughly two to three additional events a year when you're talking about large events. Uh, you know, there's a high school football game, you know, that that draws three or four thousand people, but that's not a real event in some ways. Right. Uh, we're talking about bowl games. We're talking about international soccer. Uh, you know, Lambeau Field, where the Packers play, just had a totally sold out gigantic event where I think it was Man City versus uh, versus Real Madrid here this summer. Uh, certainly, I think I'm almost sure Man City was in that. Packed, packed. Biggest, uh, you know, uh, in terms of attendance, literally the biggest soccer game on the planet the uh, the week that that was held in Green Bay. That was the first soccer game ever played in Green Bay. That stadium has been around for 60 years. Soccer's been around yeah. longer than that. And they've never played another soccer game there. So this is not something you can say, hey, what about the 70,000 fans who showed up for the soccer game? You say, well, yeah, divided among the number of years that stadium has been around, that's about a thousand fans a year coming to watch soccer yeah. at Lambo, and uh, there's very, very few stadiums around that attract large numbers of events other than the football games, and even those events uh, are rarely selling out to the uh, extent that we're seeing there. Yeah, sure, a World Cup here or there, sure, a you know a Rose Bowl, you know, sure, a BCS championship football match, but those are few and far between. Most of the time, even when you say, hey, we're going to open it up, even if you dome it like in Nashville, uh, you're just not going to get many events that are going to show up. And you're, you're talking about a, a facility that will sit empty 
90 to 95% of these. And so what's the answer here from, obviously the answer is not to give out these deals. Are there states that have proactively passed legislation to prevent these kinds of deals from going into place? Yeah. Now, it, things can always change, right? Because, you know, you have a new administration comes in. Uh, but in general, California and Massachusetts have, uh, and New York until this Buffalo deal came through, have been actually fairly good about avoiding large subsidies. So here in Massachusetts, Foxborough Stadium, where the uh, Gillette Stadium, right, uh, where the, the Patriots and the Revolution play, that was about 90% privately financed. And, and you know, the owner here, uh, he said that he was going to, he was going to move the team to Connecticut unless they paid a big, uh, a big uh, subsidy. Massachusetts told uh, Robert Kraft, well, uh, enjoy that. We'll, we'll come watch games there because we love the Patriots, but we're just not buying a new stadium. And so he said, okay, I was just kidding. I'll build my own stadium. Uh, <laughs> the TD Bank North Garden where the Bruins and the Celtics play. Again, privately privately financed. Uh, in, in MetLife, right? Uh, MetLife Met Stadium Life. in Jersey, right? Totally. Fun. By the way, this is not what this podcast is about, though. I went there for the first time. What a disaster of a stadium. Like, I don't know if you've ever been there. I, a separate podcast. I don't know. I know you're not an architect or an expert on, on you know, highway construction, but I've never seen. First of all, this, our producer may cut this. <laughs> it, the stadium looks no different than the Titan Stadium. It looks like it's twenty, thirty years old. Second of all, there's no in in way and out. Like there's, the, the traffic in and out is insane. There's like no sense of how people are going to get in and out of that place. It really is a puzzling stadium. Yeah. So. In general, stadium architects have gotten much better over the last 30 years. Uh, so uh, they are they are nicer stadiums now, much better sight lines. Again, Fenway's a, a, a wonderful place to go from a historical standpoint. In, in terms of actually watching baseball there, it's it's easily the worst stadium in the world, other than being the best stadium in the world. Again, yeah, uh, there's... Yeah. there's there are obstructed view seating. Uh, the seats don't face home plate. You can't go and get a beer and hot dogs easily. You, uh, the the seats are crowded and compact. Uh, you can't watch the stadium. They watch the game while standing in line for hot dogs. You know all these sort of things. Uh, you have to have yep. basically leave the stadium to get a beer or 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 food. <laughs> um, uh, terrible. Uh, uh, the Montreal Stadium, uh, uh, where the Expos left. A total disaster of a stadium. Uh, it makes makes Giant Stadium look like uh, like you know Fantasyland. I mean, just some terrible designs. Most of the uh, the baseball stadiums nowadays just just beautiful uh, parks with all sorts of uh, you know premium amenities uh, that just make it a great day to go to the ballpark. Um, all these things are great, but you should be paying for that yourself, and you shouldn't be asking yes. taxpayers uh, to do that. Uh, obviously, getting in and out of stadiums. Now, that's something where I think even economists might say, okay, that could be the role of government. Here, again, yeah. in Massachusetts, uh, Gillette Stadium was entirely financed by the Crafts, but the state threw in about $25 million, which is about 10% of the total construction price of the entire of the entire project, to improve road access uh, to the stadium. I'm not going to get in uh, big, uh, big uh, concerns about that, again, because... And that's what government should do is make our businesses be able to run better. And again, no no problems here from me, from my standpoint, uh, improving access to uh, businesses. Yeah. But the businesses should be building their own factory. Well, Victor, this has been super illuminating. It does seem like there, you know, there are conflicting approaches here, right? The Chicago Bears, from what I understand, that stadium, I think, is either largely or fully financed 
privately. Correct me if I'm wrong. So it seems like there are, there are multiple stories here. And so if I heard you correctly in the beginning, it's up until very recently, past two years, to summarize this, the percentage of public funding for stadiums had been going down, even if the absolute number was going up because of just the sheer cost of construction of stadiums. That that trend of the percentage shifted recently because of a couple of big projects like Buffalo, Nashville. And so, you know, who knows, given the small data set, any number of stadiums could shift this in one direction or another. What's your prediction the next five years, you know, following the politics of this? Do you think the trend will continue in favor of the Nationals and Buffaloes, or do you think the, the Bears-like stadiums will win the day? Uh, so I, I think it's definitely um, the owners themselves have all the power. And the reason they have the power is because they've got the money, they've got the time. For example, when Jerry Jones built the first billion-dollar stadium in, in the United States, uh, that's obviously the, the Cowboys Stadium in, in, in Arlington, he ended up spending about a million dollars campaigning on that. And, and it went to a vote which he won moderately narrowly, but he spent a million dollars campaigning on that because he stood to get $325 million <laughs> of subsidy. Now, mind yeah, you- Yeah, it was a good investment for him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. $325 million actually isn't a bad percentage-wise. It was only about a 30% of the total uh, construction cost. The anti-stadium folks, it's hard to rally people around and, and get big funding when the average taxpayer uh, you know, stands to lose $100 or $150 of taxes over right. a 10-year period. So it's 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 the classic special interest case where, you know, uh, a, a few people with a lot to gain can basically out-campaign lots of people with a little bit to lose. You know, they, the, again, Jerry Joe, uh, you know, the, the, the anti-stadium people, they hire people like me, but I, you know, they didn't hire me. I, I, I did pro bono work and, and, and could appear. Uh, Jerry Jones uh, hired the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders to go door to door. Strangely, right. I don't have the same sort of ability to convince people uh, uh, to uh, convince right. people that the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders do. It's hard. And once people see a new stadium, those owners see a new stadium, they get a case of stadium envy. Yep. And they say, hey, I want one of those too. And as soon as one domino falls, it's no surprise that you've seen uh, place after place after place here. Uh, the other important thing that people have learned is the more opaque you can make it, then people eyes glaze over and people can't see the subsidy. That's what happened in, in or, and, or you do it all behind closed doors and you tell people, okay, take it or leave it right now. It's a classic sales technique that any used car mm -hmm. salesman would would work. Yeah. It's like, hey, you buy it now. If it's if you don't buy it now, it's not going to be here tomorrow. Um, and you got to make a choice now. And so they pressure you into these things. And in New York, they literally gave lawmakers less than a week to evaluate an $850 million project that they just sprung on them with no time left in the legislative uh, session. They said, hey, uh, here's the deal. Here's Monday. Got You got to vote on it by Friday because that's the end of the session. Take it or leave. And if you don't, you're losing the bills. Um, that was a lie, but you're losing the bills yeah. unless you make a deal now. So last last question for you. Given where you live, I presume you're a Patriots fan. Now, how much of this entire argument for you is just being bitter over Josh Allen having a nice play, place to play football? So so actually, you have it wrong. I'm a transplant. Uh, when I took my job here, I was asked in my job interview, do you like the Red Sox? I say, no, I don't like the Red Sox, but I do hate the Yankees. And they're like, okay, that's good enough for us. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, and, but but to, but to be honest here, uh, we do get asked this a lot. You know, how many people, you know, how are you just 
bitter, right? About <laughs> either your team or were you picked last at recess when you were in, <laughs> when you're in junior high and, you know, all the jocks stuffed you in the locker and, uh, and this. Uh, so that's actually not true. A lot of sports economists are gigantic sports fans. I myself, a uh, huge soccer fan, but I was actually a, a referee in Major League Soccer. I mean, so. Uh, oh, my God. I, so uh, and, I, and I'm still a Division One college soccer referee, despite the fact that literally my employer for a time was Major League Soccer. Uh, those those subsidies aren't aren't good either. Uh, again, I love soccer more than, you know, any, than any sports fan out there. But again, you shouldn't be paying for my love of soccer. I should be paying for my love of soccer. Well, in final analysis, in true Buffalo Bills fashion, we couldn't even be number one in egregious sports stadiums. We didn't even get to claim that now. We're number two, which we have a long history of coming in second um, in these types of things. So uh, thanks for this. The Bills fans in my life are going to hate this segment. But look, we got our stadium. All right, it's done. Nothing's going to stop it anyway. This is just us being honest about how bad it is for the taxpayers. But I'm glad Josh Allen has a great place to play. And, you know, I'm glad it's still it's outdoors. We'll keep the spirit of the team alive in our in our fancy seats with our sushi and hot tubs as we watch the Bills. All right. Well, again, thanks for having me again. Uh, <laughs> so, look, I, I, when I said I wasn't a, a local sports fan, I, I grew up as a Denver Broncos fan, uh, and we had it, at least in the early days, every bit as ba- badly as the Bills had it. Uh, and then I went to grad school in Minnesota, another place that hasn't uh, had a whole lot of NFL luck either. So, uh, you know, I, I feel your pain. But uh, again, you know, the question is, who should who should ease our pain? And it probably shouldn't be eased through through taxpayer subsidies. So again, thank you very much for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Once again, I'd like to thank Victor Matheson for a fun and disturbing conversation. Regressives is produced for Lost Debate by me and Joe Engelbrecht. You can subscribe to Lost Debate and the Regressives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for this week. I'm Robbie Gupta, and thank you for listening. <laughs>